Nacho Libre is a very touching. It's it's That's made, one way to describe it. Well, it's made by people who seem to love their characters, right? It's also made by people who don't seem to fully understand Catholicism. <laughs> yeah, you know what's funny? My wife and I watched that movie, and the first thing she said is, "There's no way a nun has that much hair. You could <laughs> never put all of that under a habit." And I was like, "Critiques of that movie only Catholics would think of." <laughs> yeah, yeah. I love the baptism scene mm. when Nacho walks up. Behind I believe in science. <laughs> Ferecito, that's his name. Yeah. He walks up behind him in the locker room when they're getting ready. <laughs> and he's, you know, worried about his soul and stuff. And so he just <laughs> smashes his face into water. And that picture of baptism. I baptize you. <laughs> <laughs> Although invalid in form and all kinds of other ways. Yeah. I love that scene. Well, he doesn't invoke the Trinity, right? Yeah. Because if he invokes the Trinity. It's valid. It is valid mm-hmm. because all he has to do. And I don't know the rule on whether or not the person has to be consenting. I would assume they are if they're of the age of consent or reason yeah. or whatever you want to call that. Accountability, various names for it. But if he is meaning to do what the church does in intention, then it is a baptism. Yeah. I don't know. I'd like to say, what is his name? Ferrisito? I'd like to think he was baptized. <laughs> Funny because of slapstick, but it's joyful just because that's what it looks like when you're saving somebody's life. <laughs> <laughs> I liked that movie because it was heartwarming and it wasn't irreverent to Catholicism. It didn't make it look stupid or anything mm-hmm. like that. It didn't lampoon it or attempt to lampoon it by caricatures as Hollywood often does. But I also like it because it was actually inspired by a true story. Oh, really? oh, there is a priest who for like 25, 30 years would go, what do they call them? The luchadors? Yeah. He literally would do this for years to raise money. (laughs) And he was, I don't know if he was a Franciscan friar, but he was a a priest who would do this. You can check this out. Did people know he was a priest? They didn't know who the luchador was. So it was all... Until way later. He'd been doing it for (laughs) years. later. (laughs) Yeah. It's inspired by a real story. Well, in our quest to search out Christ wherever he may be, Lucha Libre Wrestling, check. There we go. (laughs) Boom. Yeah, so for this two-parter, this is 10,000 places. And uh, we're trying to think up a new catchphrase. So I'm not going to lay it on you this time. Maybe maybe it'll come out of some inspiration. Or email us your tagline suggestions to... 10,000 places podcast at gmail.com. That's our email, 10,000 places podcast at gmail.com. Ten, 10 is spelled out. 10 is spelled out. Thousand is two. <laughs> That'd be weird. <laughs> no, it is. It is. Even though we don't have a tag yet. Uh, even though we don't have a tag, this is Alex Gildner. This is Justin Aquila. And this is Lewis Pearson. All right. 10,000 places. It's like a Hanes t shirt. It's tagless. <laughs> Boom. Oh. oh. <laughs> that was really clever. That was very How good. did you just do that? I don't know. <laughs> I, I think when I invoke the Holy Spirit, we see its fruits. And that was part of the fruits. He came and made that joke through you. Yeah. It was inspired. A willing instrument. He brings joy. He does bring joy. Praise the Holy Spirit. Amen. Who is one of the principal actors in baptism, Good transition. Because <laughs> <laughs> it is a sacrament. Yeah. So this is actually pretty near to me because I am now... A father not only in potentia, but in act two, my son was born, John Bonaventure, Jack, that's what we're calling him. Congratulations. Thank Uh, you. And as you boys were present, (laughs) my son was just recently baptized. Yes. So 
He's a lot cuter now that he's not a heathen. <laughs> or a squishy little newborn. He looks like a baby now. He doesn't yeah. look like a newborn as much. Yeah, he'll be six weeks on Tuesday. Mm. So, uh, yeah. Infant baptism. Baptism. What do we have to say about that? It's everything. It is everything. It's Although the, the, the Eucharist is everything too, so it's everything in a different way, right? Right, right, right. So we had the episode on the Eucharist, transubstantiation. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So what's going on with baptism? Well, to prepare our listeners, we're envisioning a two-parter for this, right? We're going to talk about the theology here, and we're talking about infant baptism. I think because infant baptism is one of those sticking points between Catholics and some mainline Protestant denominations, but many of the other Protestant denominations or non-denominations that think what's called a believer's baptism, if baptism is necessary for salvation at all, is the only kind of baptism that does something. And for such people, they don't understand why infant baptism is something Catholics do. What is it supposed to be affecting? It looks like what some of my friends in in the Protestant world call a a christening, right? Like it's this Mm -hmm. little ritual you do as a family, but it's not something that grace is being infused through. And so I think we're going to talk about the theological underpinnings of infant baptism for this first part, right? So, you know what's funny? Yeah. Many Protestants, if they don't do infant baptism, because some of them do, because Protestants have so many different views amongst their denominations of sacrament. And when we say Protestant, because a lot of Protestants don't see themselves that way. We mean right. non-Catholic Christians. Right, right, right. right, yeah. right. Including the Anglicans. You're Protestants. Sorry, guys. <laughs> but I have a good friend who's Anglican who might not like that. But anyway... So they do something called a dedication where they have the baby come up with the family and the pastor like prays over it and dedicates it to the church. So there's still this sense that something is needed, right? Yep. Even if they don't actually practice infant baptism or believe that baptism is an actual effective sacrament that affects grace and is necessary in the work of salvation. So one clarification, when we say necessary, we don't mean necessary for God to accept it. God can work outside of sacraments, but necessary as the church knows the ordinary means of salvation. So God can save people outside of baptism, but the church cannot bring people salvation without it. But two things are different from the Protestants are, one, whether or not to infant baptism, there's some disagreement among that. And then two, whether or not baptism is actually a efficacious act that brings people salvation or would it be considered a work right Mm. you can listen i'm doing scare quotes (laughs) to scare you because uh, many protestants believe that any form of work that has to be done or is necessary for salvation is a denial of the gospel which is without works and i think we've discussed works right it's our Works way of are part of salvation. Saying, well, God, you owe this to me because of this good thing I did. Right, which yeah. is not what the Catholic Church's view on works is. Even our works are part of God's grace. But it's a, it's yeah, a common that, accusation. Yeah, yeah, that's a good thing for Catholics to recognize in any conversation about the sacraments is that there is nothing we can do to merit or earn salvation. Nope. Salvation is a pure gift from God. And we hear non-Catholic Christians speak that way. Sometimes Catholics want to pull up the drawbridge on that line. But we have to recognize our, our Protestant brothers and sisters are right about that. Yeah. They're, they're absolutely, just, fundamentally, 100% right. They're 100% right. Yeah. The only thing they're wrong about is that we teach anything else. Right. We don't and right. never have. There's a heresy called Pelagianism from the early church in which Pelagius argue that we could earn our salvation more or less by pious works. But that is not the Orthodox Catholic understanding in fact, of works. There is an actual heresy called semi-Pelagianism too, which was also condemned. Like, you don't even halfway do works. There are no (laughs) works that you do that earn salvation. There are works that make you more holy 
and then make you one who merits being in heaven. But even that is not by your own work, right. but by the work that God brings about in you. Yeah. It's wrought in you. By the way, do you guys know what the present tense of wrought is? Right. I don't know. <laughs> no, I don't know either. <laughs> As my wife, she's an editor and a good one. And I was trying to figure out, like, how would you make rot into the pre- He right. I don't even know the gerund. He, rotting? Rotting. <laughs> Having rot. I don't know. Anyway. Mary Beth, write it in the show, 10,000 places. That's right. at gmail.com with the answer to that question. (laughs) (laughs) And so when you're talking about necessary for salvation, what we understand is there's this gift that God has for humankind. He wants to give us his eternal life. He wants to let us share in it, right? Right. And so, as you said, God does whatever God wants, but he's also established these ordinary means for us to also access this gift he wants to give us, right? Yeah. And we got to remember that salvation is for the Catholic Church and intellectual tradition, not one thing. There's not like, we can talk about salvation at different moments. So when we say necessary for salvation, we need to be clear what we mean by salvation there. Because if you mean the moment of reforming grace in which original sin is wiped away, you're forgiven all your sins and you are brought into the people of God. That is what baptism does, right? And that is a salvation. But also, we have to become people who don't sin. That is also salvation. Getting to heaven is salvation. There's a cosmic salvation that God is bringing about that includes the redeemed and the unredeemed in the universal reconciliation or restoration of all things talked about in Acts and throughout the tradition. So when we say necessary for salvation, there's a lot of Protestant theology, and I'm not saying all, but a lot of it seems to pinpoint this moment where you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, and now you're saved. And that is just a very brittle, narrow, superficial reduction of salvation to this one moment. When we're talking about salvation in the Catholic Church, we're talking about a million different things that all end with the union of the person in heaven with God, having become sinless, fully actualized, a part of the beatific vision. Yeah, I want to tie in another element, which is the sacramental sign, which we've already alluded to. Every sacrament has an outward sign that makes the grace, in a sense, present to us in particular moments, in incarnational moments. And uh, I like that, incarnational moments. I was doing baptism prep in a parish in Houston. I was teaching it, and it was right after Hurricane Harvey hit. And listeners, if you remember in 2017, if you saw any images of Hurricane Harvey or if you lived through it, the city of Houston was just under a deluge, which felt almost like Noah's Ark. I lived through it for five days of nonstop rain and mm. flooding throughout the city. And I remember coming back to teach baptism class a couple weeks after, after this flood. And I'm, <laughs> I'm thinking, I got the image of why water is such an effective sign, not just an efficacious sign, but a sign that points toward the reality of what is happening when the church teaches about baptism. So we teach that, right, in baptism, sin and death are conquered in the waters of baptism by Jesus' death and resurrection. So we're baptized into Jesus' death and resurrection. The word baptism means to be immersed. And I'm thinking, we know now the destructive power of water. Like we've experienced it for five days a couple weeks ago. And it was one of the most providential moments to see amid the destruction of the city why the church uses this image of water, because it's, it is both purifying and brings new life. 
and it refreshes and restores us, all things that baptism does spiritually, but water can also bring about chaos and death. And that's what Christ is conquering. Well, and it does bring about death. You know, Romans 6, we die with Christ, we're buried. But I also like that you bring up Noah. I don't know if you had the scripture in mind. First Peter chapter 3. So he says, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went into and preached the spirits in prison. We're not even going to begin to try to unpack that verse just to know. Uh, who formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah during the building of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were saved through water. And hear that, saved through water. Baptism to go on in 1 Peter, verse 21, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a clear conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and at the right hand of God, is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers subject to him. Mm. That said, everything you just said, which, I mean, I think it's great. Like, you didn't even have that scripture in mind. No, and yeah. But that is it, yeah. right? That is... So clear what baptism is and what it's doing. That's such an amazing experience you had, though, psychologically for you and all those preparing to be reminded. I think one of the sticking points is we understand what it looks like to consent to something. I will accept this gift because I say yes to it. And so, for instance, some strange of Protestantism say, well, I need to say the Jesus prayer or the believer's right. prayer. The sinner's prayer. Yeah. And when I say it, I am consenting. And that allows me to accept this gift that God wants to give me. What does water have to do with anything, right? So this is one of the stigma points. They don't see, well, I know what it means for me to use my will to say yes to God, but why does water do something? And I think this points out, just as God can do anything he wants through people, he chooses apostles, disciples, little boys who bring a basket full of fish and loaves to Jesus. He chooses to let them gather the scraps. He could do it all himself if he wanted, but he, he doesn't. And it's not just people. It's the physical stuff of the world. He said, I'm going to let these creatures, this water, be something that does things for me in the world. Nobody is doing like cantaloupe and Hawaiian punch for the Eucharist, right? Like we all know that it's bread and like even those who don't do wine do grape juice. There's elements that we know is there and that's the sacrament that everyone accepts, right? Even if they don't accept that it does anything efficacious. But I mean, the sinner's prayer thing always kind of baffled me. Because one, how is that not then like verbal regeneration or something? You know, like if you have to say a prayer, there's still an element that you have to do. Yeah, it doesn't include water, but you still have to say something. Well, I should say this, though. Calvinist traditions don't even believe that you consent. Even that would be a work. Mm -hmm. So even then, that's what they call, um, is it irresistible grace? You cannot reject it. You have to accept it if you're elected. So some wouldn't even say that you do that. But I figure like every gift has to be accepted somehow, right? If I buy you a house and you don't go like pick up the deed or go live in it, <laughs> right? I wouldn't say you've done a work for my gift or that you've earned the gift. The idea of gift is it's unmerited, it's unearned. But, but you, you have to accept it. Yeah. Well, baptisms, I think, well, a couple things going on in baptism, which I think the ritual of baptism reveals to us. One is that to those Protestant traditions that do require an ascent to faith, the Catholic tradition does as well. Mm -hmm. And we'll talk 
maybe more about the distinction with infant baptism and adult baptism in our second part. But in baptism, if you've ever seen an adult baptized at the Easter Vigil or some forth, we make a profession of faith and the person says, I do, as well as renunciations of the enemy. And the same thing happens at an infant baptism, except the church, and this is often where the crux of the disagreement lies, the church, Catholic church, believes that the parents and or godparents can make that act of faith on behalf of a child. Which is consistent with scripture as well. So like Colossians 2 directly parallels circumcision, which was done on the eighth day. So certainly those little Jewish kids didn't know they were being made a part of the nation of Israel and entered into the covenant of the law. And that is directly correlated by Paul in Colossians to baptism, which he says is a circumcision made not by hands. So the idea that you have to have this awareness and consent to be brought, because people, the modern individualist, like the rugged individualism of the modern West sees baptism as a thing that happens to be individually apart from anything else. When the long historical view of the church from scripture forward, and then even going back in the Old Testament is that, no, you are entered into the community of salvation. And so you are being saved as an individual because you are brought into the people of God. Yes. It's not God casting a spell on you. It's you being brought into the group and now having all the sacraments available to you. And I think pushing this to the opposite extreme, there are some Protestants who understand that the Bible tells us water is required, and so they take it seriously. Right? There are some who think, I don't understand why this is needed. You just need the sinner's prayer. But there's others, like you said, a gift is given. You don't have control over the giver. Mm-hmm. If you're drowning, it's not up to you to consent or not to consent to be drowned, right? You, you will be put to death and buried in water if you are underwater. I do know of some Protestant strains that say, yeah, we need to take the Bible seriously about this water thing, which means if you are not actually immersed under the water, it still doesn't count as a baptism. And so what's interesting for Catholics, we- are not immersionists. We upset everybody. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so I've read that Baptism by immersion is a kind of, what is it, council perfection? If possible, it's great, but it's not necessary for the matter. The it, matter requires water, but it doesn't require full immersion. It is right. what the word means, baptizo, yeah. is to immerse. And that's um, typically the argument that yeah. they're given that, well, maybe I'll grant your infant baptism, but you didn't immerse the infant, which so I don't know so, if that counts. Which is so counterintuitive to me because they're arguing over the form, but they don't think it means what we mean by it, right? So like, you have to get it right and do it exactly as the form of baptism, you know, according to the word. But then you don't also need baptism at the same time. So you, you don't need baptism, but if you do, you do it, you need to do it exactly right how it says. Yeah. It's bizarre. Well, well I, I sympathize with that. I mean, but so what is the response to that? Well, testimony. That's what it always is. I was there. You were baptized. <laughs> I saw my son baptized. I held him while he was baptized. We did not immerse him. That's what I mean. If you weren't immersed, why should it count is the Well, because it's the the formulation of scripture. It's water and it's in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit. As Jesus says to baptize in the Great Commission, Matthew 28. I mean, you could argue that it says immersion. We don't have any evidence that it was only done that way. In fact, in the Didache, which is actually one of the earliest documents we have, it actually overlaps with the writing of scripture in 70 AD, says that, it's best to have living water. Mm-hmm. So flowing water. Right. Yeah. So yeah. yeah so like in a water. stream like a or river. a creek. Yeah. But you can do it with 
non-living water. There's no statement about whether or not it has to be immersion. But, I mean, the essentials are there, and you, you can bring, you know, tradition into it. But I think certainly if the baptism is a circumcision, then yes, it can be done as an adult. It can also be done as an infant. And I do think it makes sense not to want to dunk infants. I mean, we've all seen that YouTube video or that, and I know it's an Eastern Orthodox priest, <laughs> just like, just shoving that oiled child into the water. But, you know, like, I don't see why there's any statement aside from that's what the word means, mm-hmm. that this is baptism. I think one interesting way to think about this for myself is like, it's actually the flexibility of the church. The church, this is a longer conversation, the church is stable, but it also adapts. Mm-hmm. And so we call this development. Development, right. We've talked about that before. And I mean, we have evidence from the early church practice that you know, baptismal fonts, when they were built, were built for immersion, more mm-hmm. or less. We have records where it seemed to be, in large part, older children, you know, were being baptized or baptized one day and their death date was the next day and they're like eight or nine years old. So it was probably, infant baptism was probably not terribly common. But, you know, as the church began to adapt to missionary situations and it began to adapt to the reality of infant mortality and what have you, and it began to understand the implications of baptism, I think more and more it adapted its practice. Mm-hmm. And if you believe in the church and entrust yourself to the church, that that process of development is guided by the Holy Spirit, you don't really have to worry about this. That's at least my I perspective. I agree. I agree completely. Um, if you're worried more about the accuracy of exactly how it's done in scripture or how it's done in the first 50 years of the church, then yeah, this is going to trouble you. Yeah. I mean, probably most likely it was immersion in the first, in the scripture in the first 50 years of church. It was probably also three times Mm -hmm. dunking, not just a single dunk. So in the name of the father and the son and the Holy spirit. But again, yeah, I think that the church can discern which parts are necessary and which aren't, you know, the church is the true interpreter of scripture the magisterium is anyway. I don't know that there's Protestants who wouldn't believe that. But like returning to some pristine form of baptism rather than preserving it as it's come down to us, like what? how would we even access the pristine form? Right. It's about a worldview shift, right? The difference, I think, the sticking point, if I think the Bible is the foundation of the church and my life with Jesus, the Bible is the bedrock. Anything that someone says to me from history or tradition, it doesn't matter as much, right? But if, as a Catholic, I think the church that Christ founds over which he sets the Holy Spirit as a guarantor is the source of the sacraments and the Bible itself. No, and the Bible itself. Let's, let's, Yeah. yeah. The church comes from the Bible or the Bible comes from the church. That's a silly question. That's the worldview shift, right? I mean, as Catholics, we see... It takes a church to canonize a Bible, but it's not one worldview that's shared by many Protestants. And so when we say things like baptism is the ordinary means through which we receive God's sanctifying grace, and because of that, as it's given to the church, the church can have these modifications through history that preserve its essential form and matter. We can have sprinkling as opposed to immersion still be valid. It makes sense to us because we know the church is the thing that does it. Mm-hmm. As opposed to someone who thinks, no, the Bible's the thing that's the guide. And anything I might call a church is a derivative thing downstream. Right. Well, and I think as every experiment that's attempted to return to the biblical church has shown, it's just not possible. Right. The Bible doesn't cover what the gospel looks like in every situation 
in every time, place, context, language. It just doesn't. That's not because the Bible is somehow broken, but it's not for that. It wasn't written for that. It was written to be a witness to the apostolic deposit, right? And so it is living and active in the hands of the church. And so I don't like the distinction between church, which comes first, the Bible or the church. That's just so complicated a question. And it's like, how do you also separate the people of Israel out from the people who are the church of the new covenant? You know, I think in this first part, we've talked a little bit about the rite of baptism. We've talked a little bit about the, the matter and the form of baptism. And then some common questions of dialogue that have come up with the differences in the Protestant brothers and sisters. I think our next episode to continue this conversation, we want to shift to talk to Catholics and why it is effective and advantageous to have your children baptized as infants. So stay tuned for that episode as we continue to find Christ in 10,000 places. I'm Justin Aquila. I'm Lewis Pearson. And I'm Alex Giltner. Thank you for joining us. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit SpokeStreet.com.